Well, thank you, Judy. And, and, and again, uh, thank you, Roger. That was terrific. Uh, uh, the next uh, next session is going to be an hour uh, discussion. is going to be a, done as a case-based discussion. And to coordinate that case-based discussion, we have with us uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Tiffany Walker. Tiffany is an assistant professor of medicine at Emory University in the Division of General Medicine. She is uh, an internist who actually also at the, at the end of her residency did uh, the EIS fellowship at CDC and then returned to academia. And she's uh, based at Grady where she serves as a principal investigator for the Grady post-COVID clinic. And she's also an investigator in the recover study. She will be coordinated this, this panel in which we will have our, our prior uh, speakers, but we'll also have uh, uh, the, the next two speakers joining us. And those will be Dr. Annie Antar, who is an assistant professor of medicine in Charles Hopkins, who will be speaking later about HIV and COVID and long COVID, and Dr. Kanisha Sinnerman, who is an associate professor of pediatrics at Duke University, and she will be later speaking about research and the recover of cohort of the studies being planned. So Tiffany, why don't you take it from here and, and welcome everybody to the panel. Thank you, Dr. Del Rio. Um, thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, we hope that this will be a really stimulating case-based panel discussion. We have a number of really excellent discussants as Dr. Del Rio mentioned, and we'll be going through long COVID diagnosis and management. Um, we encourage all our panelists to give their expert opinion and keeping in mind that we may disagree on, on some answers. This is a rapidly evolving area of research um, and there's still a lot that we don't know, but we're gonna go through some pretty high yield cases on what we might see in the long COVID population and uh, how we might manage them. Um, so moving forward, I have no disclosures to mention. And then our learning objectives, of course, are to identify manage management strategies for common long COVID phenotypes and to counsel patients on long COVID risk and mitigating factors based on the, the literature that uh, we have available. So starting with case number one. So this is a 35-year-old female. She has hypertension, but otherwise she's a very healthy individual, fully vaccinated, avid runner. She is presenting seven months after an initial mild acute COVID infection. Her symptoms resolve, but a couple of weeks later, she started to notice that she was having palpitations and weakness when she was getting up from a seated position. Um, and it could occur even with just mild exertion. She is a waitress, and this is really impacting her ability to do her work, um, which is the only thing that she uh, has to support her financially. Um, she has had associated symptoms of generalized weakness. She has developed post-exertional malaise, which is something we see in this population where they have fatigue or malaise, kind of a delayed onset an hour later, a day later after exercise. She has brain fog with forgetfulness, difficulty concentrating, and she notices these palpitations are associated with headaches and blurred vision. We do a comprehensive physical exam and it is normal with the exception that she becomes rather tachycardic when she goes from the uh, lying to standing position. Uh, basic labs, including CBC, CMP, and D-dimer are all within normal limits. Uh, with the exception of elevated inflammatory markers with a CRP of 15. So what is the next best step in management of this patient? Would you suggest doing a transthoracic echocardiogram, doing a chest CT with contrast, tilt table testing, cardiac MRI, ventilation perfusion scan, 
or potentially something else. So go ahead and uh, enter your responses. All right, it looks like the majority of the group is interested in doing a tilt table test based on these findings. There's a couple that are interested in doing a transthoracic echocardiogram, um, a few with cardiac MRI and less with a CT chest with contrast or ventilation perfusion scan. Um, so I think we'll start with uh, Dr. Paredes. I know that you were just on the hotspot, but we'll start with you. Um, based on this patient symptomatology and, and what you know of long COVID, uh, how might you work up this patient? So first of all, I mean, we need to, the first thing we have to do with this patient is to uh, rule out other diseases. I mean, I think long COVID is, a, is an exclusionary diagnosis. So we, we really need to, to think about other, so let's say classical uh, reasons for, for um, uh, you know, uh, tachycardia. And so, so I would really make a long, uh, I mean, I interrogate her well, but I would not uh, rule out, for example, uh, even a transthoracic echocardiogram or even a, a chest uh, CT with contrast sometimes. Uh, so, so I would not rule out also the other, uh, the other vent or ventilation perfusion test or something like this to, to, to think about also possibly um, um, thrombolisms. But, but, but yes, uh, the table testing would come eventually, uh, but we should not forget about other, other causes of disease. Excellent. Um, I agree. I think we see a number of manifestations in long COVID, including VTE, including um, new onset heart failure in that population. I'm curious, Dr. Siegelman, if you could unmute yourself and give us your thoughts. Um, what would be your next best step in management? Do you agree that we should uh, look for VTE or uh, and do an echocardiogram in this patient, or would you agree with the audience to move to tilt table testing? Yeah, I, I guess I agree with Dr. Paredes that um, now we're seven months past infection. We're not told exactly when these symptoms started, but if there, um, if there's any chance that this is something that happened in the interim, I would think about more emerging things first, given that's my bent. So maybe thinking about uh, PE or myocarditis at the same time as your uh, also zeroing in on the mo more likely diagnosis of uh, POTS uh, or dysautonomia in this patient. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, my cardiologist took the, the bent that tilt-table testing is very uncomfortable and symptomatic for patients like this and is not uh, perfectly sensitive and uh, or specific. So um, some may, may say just start treating and see if we can get the patient feeling better. Interesting, interesting thought to just move forward with treatment in this patient. I, some would argue if they meet um, the uh, the qualifications that they become tachycardic with uh, rising from the laying to standing position, even in your, your clinic, and you're going with a tachycardia greater than 130 beats per minute with positional change, potentially that's sensitive enough to be able to diagnose and, and move forward with treatment. Curious, Dr. Uh, Courier, if you could unmute yourself and, and give your thoughts on long COVID and the cost of management of these patients, knowing that we have increased risk of heart failure, VTE, but also um, dysautonomia in this population. Would you do all of these tests given those risks or would you be more tailored in your approach um, considering the most likely diagnosis in this case? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the other thing that I was thinking about in a young person with new onset palpitations is whether there's any role for any kind of, you know, cardiac monitoring, culture monitoring, or even just using a, you know, a, a active, like a Apple Watch or something just to see what the heart rate is like. Um, but I think when we think about the cost, we also have to think about the cost of people not being able to work uh, and being, you know, not able to contribute to society and all the costs of, of all of the things that uh, long COVID prevents people from doing and not just the cost of the evaluation. Um, but I, I think I don't, you know, I think in this case, um, given that you already have these symptoms, um, I might pursue the workup and further um, approach to treating what might be POTS uh, to see whether you can get some symptomatic improvement. Excellent. Any other thoughts? Tiffany, I, think, I think the, the issue, that, the other issue I would have when you talk about costs and, and missed opportunities is when you were presenting the case, as Dr. Curry was, was saying, you know, was thinking about, okay, let's think, let's potentially think this is not long COVID, something else is going on. This is a young woman, could she be hyperthyroid? Could she have something else? And I just, I just worry that with so millions of people infected with COVID and so many people having COVID, we get anchored bias on, oh, this is long COVID, and we may be missing other diagnoses. So I'd like to go to see these patients with the, with, with an open mind and try to not say this is so long COVID, but rather really try to work up the patient and make sure that other things I need to rule out that that I don't want to miss. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's. Um really the pressure that a lot of us long COVID providers are really struggling with is really how much of that workup do we do? And I totally agree with you, Dr. Courier. It's a very debilitating disease and we wanna be able to get um, down to the bottom of what's causing it, both from a pathophysiologic standpoint, as well as any sort of management approaches we can offer. And have often done the million dollar workup on this patient population. I think as we start to see more constellations of, of symptoms that are uh, more common, then it gives us some information on, on how to move forward. And uh, for my teaching points with this, um, I, my approach would be to move forward with the tilt table testing, although I, I would really consider doing a halter monitor as well, Dr. Curry, because we are seeing a lot of uh, um, arrhythmias in the absence of the clear POTS picture. Um, but just show you to um, Dr. Siegelman's point, not a very specific test, but it is rather sensitive. We're looking for that um, increase in heart rate greater than 30 or uh, a max heart rate greater than 120. So just a point to make that this is a pretty common phenotype of long COVID we're seeing existed, of course, before long COVID, a predilection for the younger population, the female population, but can occur at any demographic. So um, something to keep in mind. Um, moving on to the next question, how would you manage this patient? Let's just um, assume that this patient does in fact have POTS. Would you refer them for a rehabilitation plan that focuses on upright training techniques, increase water and salt intake, initiate midodrin, order lower extremity compression garments, initiate flucocortisone, or potentially something else? All right, and if everybody has entered their responses, we'll go ahead and see what we have. All right, um, the majority would like to move forward with a rehab program that focuses on upright training techniques, um, less popular, but still there, um, water and salt intake, midodrin, and lower compression garments. 
So I will move uh, to Dr. Zimmerman now, if you can unmute yourself. So this is uh, a patient that is otherwise really quite healthy, although she does have hypertension. Um, we are assuming that she has POTS as her phenotype of long COVID. How would you support managing uh, this patient at this point? Sure, thank you. So some of the you know, available evidence suggests that um, a combination of some of these things might actually be helpful, um, you know, an exercise type program and uh, plus increasing water and salt intake and ordering the lower extremity, you know, compression garments, I guess, is, is thinking about first line non-pharmacologic um, therapies that might be helpful. The risk of water and salt intake with her hypertension, um, it, you know, should certainly be thought of. Um, but but thinking about a, a, maybe a combination of some of these things um, is probably a direction that, that I would go or start thinking about before adding additional pharmacologic therapies. Excellent. I think you bring up an, a really important point that uh, with dysautonomia and POTS, it, it often is a, a multimodal approach, um, and we have to take into account underlying comorbidities. Um, curious, Dr. Antar, is there anything you would add or anything that's not on this list that you would consider um, for your patient that has dys dysautonomia or POTS? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I think the only thing, I, so I, I completely agree with Dr. Zimmerman. I think the only thing that I have heard from the community of people with long COVID is to be really careful about um, exercise-based rehabilitation, because I think the post-exertional malaise, as Dr. Siegelman told us from his own perspective, can be really, really debilitating. And so I think there is some controversy around that um, in the community of people with long COVID. But yeah, I think... Um, my spouse actually has POTS, and so we've been dealing with that as a family um, for the last couple of years. And, you know, sometimes water and salt intake is what helps. Um, sometimes the compression garments help. Um, sometimes they don't. So it's, I think, as Dr. Siegelman really eloquently put forward, there are, you know, you try many things. You see what works for you. Um, it's kind of a stepwise approach with hopefully a caring physician on the other end. Yeah, and so it seems like you have a firsthand experience with this, and it's it's a very disabling disease, and and unfortunately, especially when it's happening to this younger population that really didn't think they were at risk of developing severe sequelae of COVID, um, and uh, I, I think it's a very patient-centered approach, like you're mentioning. Um, any thoughts on a rehabilitation plan that would make sense for this patient? Dr. Antar or Dr. Sure, Siegelman. Yeah. Well, I, I, so this is this is an area that I probably I'll defer to Dr. Siegelman because he's lived through it. But um, this is an area that I think is under active investigation right now. So I, I don't have the answer for that right now. But I think this is something that um, people are very interested in. So for for me, um, I was recommended to start what was referred to as the Levine protocol or CHOP protocol, and and there's a uh, <clears throat> what it is is a very slowly progressive um, exertion targeted, um, uh, exercise plan that's, that covers about nine months and slowly, uh, progresses you from recumbent exercise to seated exercise to upright training, um, as you build, um, build muscle tone and, um, and other capabilities so that you can, you can tolerate the sort of orthostatic change. Um, and that was, uh, it was very helpful for me. 
And Dr. Walker, can I just jump in here just for, yeah. you know, at the beginning, we heard that most of the people on the webinar are not actively treating people with long COVID. So just, um, I think it's really great to talk about what these protocols are and are most physical therapy departments familiar with implementing this when you refer someone or how do you guide the care for people to get this kind of rehabilitation? Yeah, I think that's been one of the biggest challenges is um, speaking with other networks of long COVID providers. There are certainly physical therapists that have expertise in dysautonomia, but I don't think that's true of all um, physical therapists and rehabilitation therapists. And so um, working with your networks and, and, and communities to um, increase capacity um, within your, your rehab specialists so that you can have those resources because um, Dr. Siegelman is is exactly right. Um, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in dysautonomia, but that that's the the approach. And so that was kind of a, a trick question, a trick answer. Um, a doing upright training techniques is really not appropriate for this patient population. It will exacerbate their symptoms, and um, the approach for these patients is um, really uh, recumbent exercise. So um, to Dr. Antar and Dr. Siegelman's points and Zimmerman as well. Um, th this is a disease, unfortunately, that has been um, somewhat neglected in terms of research. We don't understand the pathophysiology fully, and we don't have uh, many clinical trials in this disease to know what, what's effective. There are some observational data to support non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic options. So, um, and again, multimodal approach makes the most sense. So if you can withdraw exacerbating medications like diuretics, if they're not indicated, I think we know patients who have uh, venous insufficiency don't really need to be on that diuretic. Um, if you have medications that increase heart rate, like um, SNRIs or stimulants, um, increasing the oral and, and fluid intake if there's no contraindications. Uh, salt intake can be challenging at, at that high of uh, a value, but you could try salt tabs. And then lower body compression garments will work for some um, and not all, but really I think exercise training with recumbent exercises that mitigate the effects of gravity, swimming, recumbent, cycling, rowing, all these things that Dr. Siegelman mentioned um, with stepwise progressions the patient tolerates. And then uh, I think uh, some of us are familiar with these pharmacologic options. So mineralic corticoids won't be great for everyone, but fludrocortisone works for some. Uh, heart rate modulators like beta blockers can be uh, uh, somewhat effective. Um, Evabridine is one that there's small clinical trials in, in in dysautonomia. It does inhibit the SA nodal depolarization, so can cause bradycardia or heart block. So something to consider in conjunction with a cardiologist. Uh, Pertostigmine is quite common. Vasoconstrictors like midodrine, uh, sympatholytic drugs like clonidine and modafinil. And so you can find these all online. You can reference these. Um, they are not FDA approved, uh, and there are mostly observational data, and this is, uh, I think, an area that we really need to learn a lot more about. Any other thoughts from the group on, on these managements? Great. All I would say is this are very difficult symptoms to manage. Yes, very challenging disease, and, and unfortunately one that hasn't received the research that I think it warrants. Um, so moving on to case number two, this is a 52-year-old male with obesity, hypertension, he's vaccinated. He's coming to you three months after his second Omicron-era SARS-CoV-2 infection. Both of his infections were mild. His symptoms completely resolved after the initial infection, but then persisted after the second infection. He reports crushing fatigue that varies day to day and is worse after activities, um, so that post-exertional malaise that we talked about. 
Uh, he doesn't volunteer this, but when you ask, he has difficulty falling asleep and maintaining sleep. He has trouble with memory, foggy thinking, diffuse joint pain and back pain, and you do a comprehensive physical exam. The only thing you find on exam is a MOCA of 18 showing mod moderate cognitive impairment. Labs are normal with exception of inflammatory markers, elevated CRP at 12. Pretty classic long COVID patient. So how would you manage this patient's cognitive impairment, the one thing that you found on physical exam that is altered? And you can uh, um, put in your responses at this time. And sorry, I should read them out. Um, refer for cognitive rehabilitation, start amantadine, start guanfacine and, and acetylcysteine, screen and treat for depression, start low-dose naltrexone or something else. All right, so refer for cognitive rehabilitation is the, uh, the most popular vote here. Screen and treat for depression um, was consistent and uh, start low-dose naltrexone. Um, so moving on to our panel, so I'll start with Dr. Zimmerman. Um, you know, it's pretty classic that we will run into patients that have the full gambit of long COVID symptoms, and we won't have anything that we find uh, objectively on physical exam or laboratory work, but we do find an impaired cognitive impairment on, on uh, or cognitive function on this gentleman. How would you manage his cognitive impairment? Again, I think this is probably a multimodal approach. We certainly know that um, you know depression can coexist with cognitive impairment, or uh, that there are kind of um, uh, kind of differing presentations of cognitive impairment depending on whether or not you are depressed or not. So certainly, thinking about um, screening and treating for depression would be important. I also noticed that there is um, there was some sleep issues um, that were on your prior slide, and so I think trying to address some of that is also really really, really important. And then um, thinking about cognitive rehabilitation um, would be the probably the third thing that I would be thinking about, um, at least as an initial step, knowing that we're hopefully going to follow these people very closely, that we are really going to listen to them as to whether or not things are going to uh, are beneficial. Um, and we can change our course if things are not um, really moving in the right direction. Excellent. Thank you. So I'm hearing a theme of multimodal approach, um, which I definitely agree with. Um, Dr. Perez, I'm curious, um, are you familiar with any of these treatments um, and any thoughts from a pathophysiologic standpoint of, of medications that might be effective in cognitive impairment on this list or other? So, no, I, I completely agree with Dr. Zimmerman uh, in, the, in the approach. Uh, I think that, well, all these, uh, several of these drugs have been evaluated, but I think that there's no, we, we, we never use them outside clinical trials. So what I think we should really do is to, to do clinical trials and generate the evidence. So, so very agnostic about all these, uh, all these drugs. And we never use them actually outside clinical trials. Any other thoughts from the group? Yeah, I just, um, again, kind of going back to this cognitive rehab, you know, can you talk a little bit more about what it is and where you find it? And, and also if, if it's, uh, if these providers are able to get reimbursed for the services, I, I think um, it may depend on the setting that you're in. I, I, this is, is this often in a neuropsychologist or part of a memory or cognition unit in neurology? Can you talk more about what, what it is and how you find it? 
Yeah, no, that's an excellent um, question. And I think that um, we have advantages when we're at an academic institution as opposed to community, which I think is partly your, your point. Um, so uh, a neuropsychologist can provide these services, um, memory clinics that are run by neurologists or psychologists with expertise in, in memory um, can be very beneficial. Um, uh, Dr. Perez makes a great point. Um, so this is just an area where there's very little research right now. We have to draw on other overlap syndromes that we're seeing um, similar phenotypes in, in long COVID. I, I think of uh, MECFS, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. I definitely heard your point, Dr. Paredes, on your last Q&A about not necessarily assuming long COVID is something that existed before, but we definitely see some overlaps and can draw from some of our experience um, in, in other overlap diseases. Um, and so what's been shown to be beneficial in that population is uh, attention process training, compensatory strategies. There's a number of them listed here. We see the domains that are affected in long COVID are domains related to um, memory processing, language, and sometimes executive function. And so a neuropsychologist can really benefit us there. There's um, evidence to support cognitive rest and cognitive pacing, um, which can reduce and control the symptoms. So one, if I may just uh, chime in, uh, one of the problems we have actually is providing cognitive uh, cognitive uh, care to all the patients because we have tons of patients uh, and and uh, neurocog and we do it usually with a neuropsychologist and, and a neuropsychologist visit takes at least one hour, one hour and a half if they're fast. So so I think they're uh, so what we're trying to do also is to but I don't know if they're going to be efficient enough uh, is to to set up uh, trainings that can be done online uh, and, and, and try to find ways in by which at least patients can, can do some of the work at home. Otherwise, we are unable to cope with, with all uh, the, the big amount of, of, of patients. And I'll add, and we're going to hear more about this later from Dr. Zimmerman, there's sort of a recurring theme here about the need for research and the need for expertise and resources. And I think some of the infrastructure that's being built around the COVID uh, trials for treatment will really help facilitate for people, you know, being able to get into a setting where they can be evaluated and potentially participate in a study to help us learn what works and doesn't work. Because clearly, that's what we need to, to move this field forward. But we'll come back to that at the end of the day. That's going to be our, our you know, stick around for that, the, the, uh, that part of the program. Yeah, totally agree. And with both of your points, and Dr. Prentice, I think we all feel the strain in, in our uh, consultants as well and being able to see these patients. I won't go through these in great detail, but these are all under consideration for clinical trials. I, I mostly agree with you, Dr. Prentice, that it doesn't necessarily make sense to trial these um, in your patient population outside of a clinical trial. Although I know um, there are a number of people doing uh, low-dose naltrexone, um, because we've seen it be effective in the MECFS population, and uh, so uh, and it's such a low risk medication at a low dose of, of about four milligrams that people are using this currently. The one point I want to make about mental health is that we know that um, depression anxiety is an independent risk factor for cognitive impairment, particularly in our elderly population. Um, but we do know that cognitive impairment is an independent process in long COVID that could be made worse by uh, mental health. So screen and treat, of course, um, but not to hang our hats on it being the etiology of the, the brain fog, which uh, unfortunately, I think a number of our patients um, have had that experience with providers. And there are studies showing that even as the anxiety and depression improves, a cognitive impairment persists. 
Um, so um, to, to reassure your patients um, and, and validate them, yes, this is not just depression, this is truly uh, a separate process. So, Dr. Walker, just, uh, sorry, say. No, no, so, go, ahead. Yeah. go ahead. Uh, very quickly, when we started with our clinic, we did some systematic evaluations of depression and anxiety in all our patients. And, and what was very interesting is that few of them were depressed at the beginning, but, but when you follow them over time, then they become depressed. So, so it's not really the trigger. Uh, but depression exists, but it accumulates over time. And that, that was my only point. And we were going to say the same thing. You know, I was going to just add or reflect that um, the frustration and hopelessness that comes with having an invisible illness that you're having trouble seeking care for can lead to its own uh, anxiety and depression symptoms. And so, uh, again, a chicken or the egg, I think in many cases, long COVID may come first and this will accumulate over time. And the other thing I was just going to reflect on is a couple months into my illness, I remember having a phone call with my personal therapist uh, saying, look, I don't think I'm depressed, but I don't want to be my own doctor. And I'm having sleep trouble. I'm having fatigue issues. I'm having I'm not thinking clearly, and I'm not uh, able to do my normal activities. So uh, let's talk about this. Is this depression or not? And, uh, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times just staying, staying open-minded. And I think especially for this MECFS phenotype, it, it's, it is important to at least consider yeah, no, I think those are excellent points. And it's, you guys are saying the exact same thing I've heard patients say anecdotally. When you ask them, they feel like their depression is related to the disability, the lack of reassurance they're receiving from their clinician. So I think I think all of us want that one of the take home mes messages for our audience to be really reassure your patient and validate them. Right now, that's probably the most therapeutic thing that we have to offer. Um, well, we focused on his cognitive impairment because as, as usual, that tends to be the only uh, objective finding we see on exam. Um, how would you like to treat his fatigue, though? That's the thing that's really bothering him. Would you like to counsel him on good sleep hygiene, refer to physical therapy for reconditioning therapy, start prednisone, start modafinil, uh, a stimulant, or um, recommend physical and cognitive pacing strategies? I think we've already addressed a couple of these. All right, and let's see our results. So the cognitive pacing strategies, like we discussed before, uh, physical therapy for reconditioning therapy and uh, sleep hygiene, which uh, our audience has, has mentioned before. Um, so uh, Dr. Siegelman, I'll start with you. Um, your thoughts on approaches to managing his fatigue. Yeah, I think that, that pacing is really key. Um, I, we often wondered, my doctors and I, whether if I if only I were to sleep well, if everything else would fall into to, into line, and uh, that w unfortunately wasn't always the case. I think pacing was really the thing that uh, turned turned me around, and um, and it's a hard thing to to really understand that that you may not be able to wash all the dishes in one setting, in one, in one go. You have to wash a bit of it and then sit down before you start feeling bad, because that's. Uh, that's uh, the way this goes. You don't often have warning when you're about to crash. You have to be able to predict it. And can you speak a little bit more? And, and sorry, I wasn't able to attend your talk. Um, did you mention what the delay feels like for you? Yeah, um, for me, it's it's uh, several hours. Um, so it's, you know, some people will find that their crash happens the day after or even longer. Um, for me, it's uh, typically been uh, a few hours after the exertion and then will last for, for several hours after that. 
Yeah, and I find uh, that's pretty classic when a number of the patients that I've seen, and it can be disproportionate, uh, probably, as you mentioned, um, where the fatigue really does not relate to the, the level of exertion that you, you put into it. Um, Dr. Antar, any other thoughts on these um, starting medications uh, for this these symptoms or um, <clears throat> any thoughts on reconditioning therapy versus pacing therapy? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with Dr. Paredes where, you know, if there's not good evidence for medications, then there's really no role to start them. And, um, but it's interesting, actually, when I do talk to long COVID, um, pe people with long COVID, whether they're in my cohort or outside, um, I am seeing um, them telling me that their general practitioners are prescribing them prednisone, uh, which is, which is an interesting thing. Um, but, you know, definitely not something that's at this point in time backed by evidence. But um, that's why I'm so glad that Dr. Zimmerman is, you know, and others are leading the, um, the, the effort to actually have real clinical trials of, of, these, of these things. Um, yeah, counseling on good sleep hygiene, you know, essentially that when I read that, I'm, you know, it's almost, it's like you, you must ask the patient first what their sleep hygiene is before you would counsel them. So, you know, just like Dr. Siegelman was saying, you know, you really have to take a good history. You have to humble yourself, really try to understand what their experience is like. Um, you know, before, before counseling, but. Um. You know, I think it's really important. I, I tell patients uh, that you really have to learn to listen to your body. I think Dr. Siegelman said it very well. There, there's some good days, there's some bad days. You need to not, you know, overdo it. You need to, you know, when it's time to, to, to say, I need to take a break. I think the, the, the anecdote, the way you describe the relationship with your, your child about understanding, you know, which days are good, which days are bad. I think that's a really important uh, process here in order to prevent, you know, frustration and to really have the support that you need around it. But I also say that this is very important for for patients to to realize that their employees need to understand this, right? I mean, I think uh, 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 Jeff talked very well about how his colleagues in the emergency room, you know, are you know, he realize what he's doing, what what's going on, and, and can be supportive there. And I think we have to really understand this because this is not an easy thing and in fact it's something that uh, I mean I've been involved through the National Academies with many discussions with Social Security about this this is this is a major issue that Social Security really is looking into how do we how do we evaluate these patients what is this ability when does it apply at what point in time do you treat this as as a, as, as disability and and I think there's a lot of, of questions here and there's a lot of uh, still to be understood and to be discovered. Yeah, and I can I just jump in too because I, I just think you know to think this the the cognitive pacing I think is something that is really hard for people to do. Like I'm trying to imagine Dr. Siegelman this do nothing at all moments that you have to do to rest. Right, you can't can't read, you can't you can't work, you can't you can't be physically active. I mean how. How do people, you know, just learning how to meditate or other, other, other activities that people can do during these downtimes that are restorative in some way? Because it seems like you go crazy. <laughs> it is, uh, it is a challenge, and, and gratefully, mine was never that severe that I had to do dark room, blinds closed, and and nothing, nothing. However, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it is not. Uh, intuitive right away that that um, watching TV or um, doing a crossword puzzle would be something that's that's enough exertion to make you physically uh, physically weakened uh, for several hours and um, 
And really, it's hard to just connect those dots and really understand that for yourself. Yeah, I'd like to highlight something that you said that the cognitive load can be sufficient to cause this post-exertional malaise. It doesn't need to be a physical load and to recognize that as a clinician is important um, because it doesn't necessarily fit an illness script for us before long COVID. Um, and again, validation I think is really key for these patients. Um, the points I was gonna make, I think have already been made that essentially um, we, you have to grade your exercise or cognitive load based on your experience with your own post-exertional malaise, and that can be helped with uh, a rehabilitation specialist in this area, particularly um, this patient has more of that ME-CFS phenotype, um, and, and that's really the best approach at this point. We don't have uh, clinical trials in this phenotype or um, evidence for those other medications. Um, moving on, this uh, sticking with this case, so the patient's wife is in the room with him, and she says, uh, I don't know about all this long COVID stuff. He's already had COVID before. Shouldn't he have gotten long COVID with the first infection if he was going to get it at all? So how would you respond? Would you say, well, if you didn't develop long COVID with your first infection, it's possible, but really pretty unlikely you'll actually develop it with subsequent infections. Typically, if you get it, you're going to get it. Uh, or um, B, the risk is the same regardless of the number of infections. C, each subsequent infection increases your risk of developing long COVID. D, we don't have any studies that have looked at this yet, but it's something we're very interested in or potentially something else. Let's go ahead and take a look at our results. Um, each subsequent infection increases your risk of developing long COVID was the primary choice, um, but as uh, others think that potentially we haven't looked at this yet. So Dr. Paredes, um, based on uh, your knowledge of uh, vaccines and, uh, and long COVID risk, do you have any thoughts on how you might counsel a patient? So at the individual level, each new infection is an increased uh, risk. Uh, this has been uh, seen. So even if you had three, three COVID, acute COVIDs in the past, you can still start the long COVID in the, in the fourth episode. So patients should not be. Then at the population level, it could, it could happen that overall, as more people are being exposed, more people are being vaccinated, so on and so forth, maybe the immune system is getting trained. There is discussion. I've seen some data in cohorts uh, showing that it, it depends on whether it's prevalent or incident, incident new infections. But just to make a story as, as clean as possible, I think that I would advise them that, uh, that yes, they can still have, uh, so each new infection increases their individual risk of non-COVID. They're not protected. Yeah, yeah but I would, I would add that, that I think every, every wave has been different, right? I mean, it's, it's very different to have the original strain, you know, like what Jeff had, never had it, no immunity. We saw a lot more people develop yes. long COVID then. I think if, you know, now you have a population that either it's immune, I mean, 90 plus percent of the population is immune either through vaccination, through, uh, you know, acquired infection, a combination of both hybrid immunity. You know, the virus has changed significantly. So if you look over time, not every exposure is the same because the host has changed and the virus has changed. And I think therefore it's really hard to answer this question. I would have said here, quite frankly, we, we don't really know because it changes every time, you know? Yeah, I, I, immune from getting long COVID, but I'm, so I'm not sure, no, I'm not I sure your risk necessarily increases. So I completely agree at the population level, but then uh, at the population level, possibly we will be seeing that uh, it's clear that patients, most of patients being seen in our clinic come from the first the first wave when the immune system was not not trained, they were not vaccinated. So I'm sure that we're 
getting better. And, and overall, also the people, whichever risk factor or host factor is there, uh, after a number, a high number of exposures, I mean, possibly, possibly overall your risk decreases, but, but it should not be, I, in, in no sense, we should tell them that they are protected uh, from, from getting low COVID. No, I don't think that, you're protected. That was my point. Yeah. I don't think you're protected, but, I, but I'm not sure you necessarily have a higher risk every time you get COVID. I mean, I think you, you have a risk, basically. Yeah, I think though for this participant, this patient and his his wife, the idea that this could maybe not be long COVID because he didn't get it the first time is is you know is is really what we want to dispel. And that's an important point. If you didn't get it the first time, you can still get it if you get yeah. COVID again. I think Correct. that's a really important public health message. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll see this. We'll see people believing that either you're going to get it or you're not going to get it. And I, I've seen data to support both what Dr. Paredes is saying and Dr. Del Rio as well. So there's been studies looking at your risk of developing uh, long COVID with subsequent infections and looking at it by individual symptomatology or, or disease um, or organ system, and it was increased for all. Um, but um, paring down a little bit more, looking uh, specific to variant type in um, the recent study coming out of Recover, it showed that higher rates of long COVID in those um, in the in the Omicron era with subsequent infections, but it wasn't really necessarily true in those pre-Omicron, um, just looking at rates alone. Um, one of the questions could be to Dr. Del Rio's point, maybe um, in the pre-Omicron period, you had such a higher risk of developing long COVID from the virology of those viruses, um, that uh, those patients were more likely to develop it from that uh, variant as opposed to subsequent infections that may have been Omicron. So uh, probably the answer is we, we don't fully know that, but I, I, the, the answer, um, but I do think the counseling um, to patients on uh, a, a more layman's level would probably be uh, increased risk with subsequent infections. Um, sticking with that case, the patient chimes in and says, well, I've been telling my wife that she should get vaxxed too, but she just won't listen to me. Maybe you can talk some sense into her. She hasn't had COVID yet. Does the vaccine provide some protection against long COVID? So how does the vaccine play a role in this? Um, you say, uh, yeah, the vaccine prevents long COVID entirely, or you could say the vaccine um, seems to really decrease the risk of infection and may decrease the risk of developing long COVID. Uh, the vaccine increases the risk of developing long COVID or has no impact or something else. All right, so I think the majority of people feel that, uh, as we know, it decreased the risk of the acute infection, and we believe that it will decrease the, the risk of developing long COVID. Um, Dr. Courier, I'm curious your thoughts on uh, how you counsel patients on the vaccine, not only um, for prevention of severe acute COVID, um, but any implications it would have for long COVID. Yeah, I think um, given where we are with our uh, both diagnostic and therapeutic approaches for long COVID, the one thing people can control or two things is you know, trying to reduce their risk of, of getting COVID, but by getting vaccinated, um, that is something that you can do. And I, I think it's, it's you know, it's not going to be 100%, but there's where you're hearing every, you know, all the all the frustration with with making the diagnosis and having treatments to offer. If you could do something to prevent it, I think people would would want to take advantage of that. And it's it's disconcerting that it continues to remain levels of vaccination continue to remain low despite an ongoing pandemic. So, 
Yeah, and you know, Dr. Zimmerman, it seems that uh, most people have made their mind up about this vaccine, whether they're going to get it or not. But there's potentially a population of these younger patients, um, particularly the ones that could go on to develop, say, dysautonomia, that could be really disabling. Um, your thoughts on on approaches to um, um, to counseling them on uh, use of vaccine if if they haven't gotten it yet. Sure. I mean, I think um, Dr. Courier's uh, rationale that she just presented makes probably the best sense um, that, you know, because of the concerns and the risk, potential risk associated with um, acute COVID and then long COVID and the fact that this may be a, a prolonged debilitating disease in someone who is normally active, et cetera, um, this is the one thing that we know can potentially prevent. So I, I, I think the fact that there aren't really a lot of other options is, is the rationale that I would really lean on, as Dr. Courier mentioned. You know, you you know you Tiffany, and I, I, I tend to use this as a, as a way to talk people into getting vaccinated, especially young people, because I think if you, you know, if you heard in, in, in you know, Dr. Siegelman's talk, it, it's striking what an important and debilitating symptom the, the loss of smell and loss of taste is. And you can tell a young person, yeah, you may not die, but you may not be able to taste anything or smell things for six months if you get long COVID. That gets their attention. That beer is not going to taste like you like it. That's going to get their attention. <laughs> and, and I've used this frequently to tell people, you know, vaccine may not prevent it, but it will decrease your risk. So, you know, you don't want to get COVID because if you get long COVID and you develop the anosmia, it's not a fun symptom to have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really the approach to consider in these younger folks. Um, Dr. Antar, have you had... Uh, younger patients who aren't as concerned about their risk and um, and then have gone on to develop long COVID? Yeah, good question. Um, so my practice is in people with HIV, and it actually mirrors, I would say, the HIV population in that most of my, um, my patients are older. I do have younger patients who have not got vaccinated, and um, they have their own reasons. I usually, you know, try to tell them um, yeah, my approach is to counsel them why I think it's important. So decrease the risk of severe acute COVID. And I say, you know, there is some uh, risk decrease to getting long COVID. And I describe that and I'm studying long COVID in people with HIV. So I have things to tell them. But then the, I think the other, the, the you want to have other answers for them that might be acceptable to, to them. So if they've decided against vaccination, they're usually not going to do it. So one thing I will say is that, you know, there, there might be some emerging data that things like Paxlovid might help decrease your risk of um, getting long COVID. And so I tell them, if you think you have COVID, you test positive, call me. I will prescribe you an antiviral. Um, and if that decreases your risk of long COVID, I'm happy to do that. Um, and I know when we all know that it decreases the risk of being hospitalized for COVID as well, too. So I think it's important to meet them where they're at, um, provide education. If they're not, you know, um, if they've made up their mind, then provide other alternatives that might be acceptable to them. Excellent. That's a great answer. Um, so looking at the, the data um, that you guys have mentioned, so um, there, by different modalities, there's one study looking at long COVID risk um, following vaccination, showing decreased risk in, in both um, mechanisms studied. And then again, uh, out of the recover cohort, we see interestingly, both the um, pre-Omicron era as well as the post-Omicron era were having lower rates of long COVID in those that were uh, vaccinated prior to infection. 
Um, okay, so we'll move on to a new case now. So this is a 61-year-old female with uncontrolled diabetes, heart failure with a preserved EF and hypertension. She's coming to you 12 months after a Delta-era SARS-CoV-2 infection. Uh, she's had fatigue ever since COVID-19. It's been persistent. She's not quite as concerned about that. She's worried about uh, crampy abdominal pain for the past month, early satiety, nausea, decreased PO intake, uh, she's had an intermittent diarrhea, not every day, but some days, and it'll be three to four bowel movements per day. Uh, she only notices blood on the tissue while wiping, but it's not mixed in with the stool and it's not in the bowl. Her exam reveals uh, mild abdominal tenderness to palpation, no blood in the rectal vault, and her labs are within normal range with the exception of some anemia with a hemoglobin of 10, a low MCV, and uh, elevated inflammatory markers, CRP of 15. So what's the most likely cause of her GI symptoms? Uh, functional dyspepsia, inflammatory bowel disease, COVID-19 enteropathy, irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or maybe something else. We think these GI manifestations have been present um, in long COVID, but just haven't had the awareness until more recently in recent studies. So what do we think this patient has? And let's look at the results. So COVID-19 enteropathy, we see that in HIV and other viruses. Could that be the case in this patient? Um, so um, Dr. Siegelman, have you been noticing uh, as patients are coming into your ED with long COVID symptoms, um, you're probably uh, particularly adept at, at um, uh, recognizing this constellation of symptoms. Have you been seeing GI manifestations in your population? For sure. Actually, one of the patients that stands out the most for me is a patient who had been incarcerated and had a, this was back in, in the early days when there really wasn't testing, had a febrile illness, lost a smell taste, uh, and then uh, and then had several months of diarrhea and abdominal cramping. Um, and just sort of just, just like this, um, loss of energy and now was out of jail and trying to get work, but but couldn't because he was so overcome by his GI illness. Um, and I think that uh, he was the first that I saw like this that was long COVID, probably long COVID with a GI source. Yeah, and um, when you're seeing these patients, um, do any of these jump out to you as potential uh, causes? Are you seeing this uh, as constellation um, similar to any of these other diseases that are already well identified? Sure. And, you know, especially in the age group of the woman that's presented in the case here, I mean, lots of other things come to mind. And this is, I think, a good example of a, a moment where we have to stay broad before blaming this on, on their, their COVID infection. Fifth, you know, 60-year-old woman with early satiety and some blood in her stool has a lot of things that are much more scary running through my mind. Yeah, I was going to say that too. I think a ruling out colon cancer would have to be high on your list in this age group with those symptoms. So I think that's a really important lesson is not to just jump to what might be from long COVID, but putting on your, you know, general practitioner hat first. Yeah, that's excellent. I really like that. Um, I think uh, since long COVID symptoms can be so vague, it's very easy to attribute things to long COVID without looking into other more common diseases. Um, and then um, Dr. Predates, given your um, knowledge and understanding of pathophysiology, um, do any of these jump out to you? 
No, I, I would also prioritize uh, colon cancer uh, as, as well. I think that enteropathy is really a hallmark of, of, of acute and, and post-acute COVID. It happens very quickly, actually, possibly thinking about how, where the vagus nerve becomes infected with, maybe it's in the gut, actually. Who knows? That's an hypothesis. So because enterocytes are really very actively uh, and quickly and easily infected. And, and enteropathy is very frequent during acute COVID and also during post-acute COVID. But here you see uh, everything is possible, but it's 12 months since since the acute COVID-19. There's blood in the, in, in the stool. Um, it could happen. Uh, I hear a lot about SIBO, uh, and, and I really I have a hard time understanding what it is exactly when it applies to these patients. So, so, so um, I certainly um, wouldn't think about that one. And it may be irritable bowel syndrome, might not be the exact uh, exact uh, age uh, age range, but but I would certainly rule out uh, a colon cancer here. Excellent. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I do think though that that irritable bowel syndrome has been described as almost a a, a dysautonomia kind of phenomena in some patients. And yeah. and you know, but but I I always like to think that as a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, Again, in this patient, I would go to a colonoscopy, endoscopy, many other things, because because I, I emphasize what Dr. Courier said. You know, we don't want to miss. I, I've seen way too many people already that they were told they had long COVID and they had something else that mm -hmm. people had had not seen, had not picked up. So I think it's really important to to not go with the blinders. So oh, this is long COVID, and 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 let's forget about everything else. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And so I totally agree. This patient uh, really warrants um, a endoscopy for age-appropriate cancer screening, especially with some bleeding. Um, we are seeing that irritable bowel syndrome is more common in those that are COVID-exposed versus control. The data are um, not overwhelming, but we're starting to hear more about it, see more reports of it. You see here in uh, this figure that it's statistically uh, significant ir um, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and it, for some people, it can be pretty disabling. I've had some that are extremely uncomfortable, can't eat anything. And so um, what I'm trying to describe in this case is a patient that has kind of that mixed picture. So they're not having diarrhea every day. I didn't speak much about their constipation, um, but in this patient, they were having uh, some straining with their stools in between. And um, so consider inflammatory bowel syndrome. I agree, you can see this in, in dysautonomias. Um, the question of whether or not we can see inflammatory bowel disease, uh, I, I haven't seen that or seen reports of it yet, but uh, of course we have heard mention of, of uh, autoimmune um, dysfunction in, in COVID. Uh, so things to keep in mind. And yeah, um, the COVID-19 enteropathy tends to be more the acute phase. I will mention in this study, this was at a 12-month time point, but there was no statistical significance at a six-month time point. Interesting, uh, unclear the, the, the cause of that, but it may speak to the underlying physiology of what, what's going on. We do see delayed onset of, of new symptoms in long COVID that may not have been present early on in the COVID or, or early post-acute phase. Um, okay, so um, moving on, we have a 34-year-old male. He has very uncontrolled diabetes. He has obesity and obstructive sleep apnea. He's coming three months after a mild acute COVID infection with symptoms of long COVID that have persisted since the infection with fatigue, weakness, and brain fog. Um, he's developed new back pain one week ago, and that's really what he wants to talk about. Sudden onset that's really progressed to nine out of 10 pain associated with radiation to his right anterior thigh. 
he has some abdominal pain and nausea. You do a thorough exam and you notice that uh, the, the abnormalities are he is febrile at 38.5, no abdominal tenderness palpation, but he does have pain with extension of his back. And when, when you saw him walk in, he had a very intelligent gait. His labs are unchanged from previous um, and his spine x-ray you checked was normal. Uh, what's the next best step in management for this patient's back pain? Would you go ahead and check that CT spine or would you treat his pain with opioid analgesics since it's really quite severe, refer to physical therapy to improve range of motion and decrease pain, start gabapentin for neuropathic pain, refer to pain clinic for corticosteroid injection or uh, would you consider something else? All right, we'll go ahead and look at our responses here. Check the CT spine as the most popular or potentially refer to physical therapy. Um, so Dr. Del Rio, looking at this constellation of symptoms, are you concerned? What are your thoughts and how would you move forward in managing this patient? You know, uh, back pain and fever are two things that an infectious disease doctor I get very worried about because you know, epidural abscesses and other things can leave you, it, it lead to paralysis very quickly. When I have somebody with fever and true back pain, and especially nowadays, and, and you know, we have a lot of people using injectable uh, uh, drugs, opioids, and other drugs. Uh, I think I may, you know, CT spine is, is a way to go, but I, I may, may may even go directly to an MRI. I mean, this is somebody I want to want to be absolutely sure they don't have an epidural abscess, a discitis, some reason to explain that fever and and back pain. Yeah, excellent, um, Dr. Courier, your thoughts. Yeah, and I think also the acute onset um, and the radiating symptoms really suggest there could be some nerve compression. So I'm completely on board with the, the ID approach here to getting the CT scan or MRI. Yeah, I, I was trying to throw in a trick question here, which you guys all picked up on. Um, and it's the point that we've been making throughout this presentation. All these symptoms are consistent with long COVID fever, fatigue, back pain, joint pain, um, uh, brain fog. And the most recent study we mentioned before out of the recover cohort shows that these are more common in COVID exposed patients versus those without exposure to COVID. Um, but it's really the urgency or, or the emergence of the symptoms, um, the acuity of them and uh, the association with a fever. So not to hang our hat on uh, the fact that these are all symptoms of long COVID. If you have a constellation of symptoms that to you puts up your red flag, really consider these other diseases. Um, and, and even in, in diseases that aren't um, critical illnesses, if it, if it appears to be something else like we talked about, could be colon cancer, then we wanna screen for those things and not just use um, long COVID as uh, the diagnosis we hang our hat on. Great. I think we have time. And for I one think, and I think Tiffany just goes back to emphasizing what has been said also over and over. You have to be a really good internist, a really good general practitioner to see this patient. I think sometimes I worry that if they go to a specialist, they're being seen by a cardiologist or pulmonologist, some of the things may be missed. And that's why I really think this is the multidisciplinary approach is great, but but you need somebody who's who's a true internist in the evaluation of these patients. Yeah. I think I think that's critical, Carlos. I, I this is a there has to be someone in the middle that actually coordinates everything. It's not just, and this is hard to make it understand to some, uh, you know, people who decide on healthcare structures uh, because they, at least in our region, sometimes it's like, oh, they already have a cardiologist, they already yeah. have a neurologist and that doesn't, doesn't work that way, yeah. 
All right, we'll try and squeeze in one last question. Um, so we have a 61-year-old male with hepatic cirrhosis admitted to the hospital with alcoholic hepatitis and hepatic encephalopathy. He's gotten much better. He's in the hospital awaiting placement. Um, he's previously vaccinated. Unfortunately, he starts to have some mild viral resp respiratory symptoms and you test him. Sure enough, he's SARS-CoV-2 positive for the first time. Um, unfortunately, his SpO2 is 97% on room air. His exam is within normal limits. His lungs are clear. The only findings are his known ascites and stigmata of cirrhosis. AST is 152, ALT is 80. His T bilia has come down quite a lot from 28 down to 18, but it's quite elevated still. And his INR is 2.1. How would you like to manage his acute COVID infection taking into account a lot of the things that we've discussed today um, would you withhold treatment? He's just a little too complicated. Would you start um, nermatrovir and rotonavir, which is known as Paxlovid? Would you start um, molnupiravir? Would you start remdesivir or potentially take another approach? We'll go ahead and see our results. Um, so it looks like uh, nermatrovir and rotonavir, so Paxlovid was the win. Um, some considered uh, remdesivir and uh, we're a little bit all over the place. So I'll start with Dr. Zimmerman. Your approach to this patient with uh, severe hepatic impairment, how would you move forward with treating his SARS-CoV-2 infection if you were to treat it? Uh, I would be fairly concerned about nermatrovir and rotonavir given um, uh, known concerns in hepatic um, insufficiency in the, this particular population. Um, I, I would uh, potentially think about starting uh, molrepinavir, although this patient is fairly high risk, but in an okay situation <laughs> right now. Um, you know, certainly remdesivir, there's concerns about liver dysfunction as well. So th those would be my initial thoughts. It's not, it's not straightforward. <laughs> No, it's not. And this was my case um, two weeks ago. So um, Dr. Courier, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the, the it's caution, right? Caution using uh, using this for treatment. And I, I think the um, that that's a clinical judgment and make sure obviously they're not on any other contraindicating medications. And I, I think that, you know, we talked about the rationale for using treatment as the hope that you not only reduce the risk of hospitalization and death, but prevent long COVID. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think there's some compelling data from observational studies on nermatrelavir, ritonavir. Interestingly, in the um, prospective trial of two monoclonal antibodies, the BreBio antibodies that significantly reduce hospitalization and death in active two, we did not see a significant reduction in, in self-reported 13 symptoms of long COVID. Um, now maybe monoclonal antibodies are different than antivirals, but I, I think this is an area where we really need uh, more research and we need to agree on what these endpoints are so they can become endpoints for clinical trials of therapeutics. And you know, as, as Dr. Parady said before, with rates of hospitalization at 1%, we're never gonna get any new drugs approved based on that. So we need to think about whether long COVID could be uh, an indication for approving a treatment. So that's kind of getting a little far off the spear here, um, but um, I, I definitely would consider treating and I might cautiously use um, nermatrelavir, ritonavir. 
Excellent. Dr. Del Rio, this patient is um, a captive audience. They're inpatient. Would you consider remdesivir in this patient? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think remdesivir would be my choice here. It's easier to administer inpatient, et cetera. But I would say that the studies that we have of, of, of decreasing the risk of long COVID are with dimetrovir, ritonavir, and, and also in, in, in a, with, there's some data with malnupiravir, but we have no data with remdesivir. So, I mean, I, I think I think this person needs to be treated just because they're, you know, 60, they have liver disease, they have you know, a lot of reasons to treat them to decrease the risk of ending up in the ICU. And, and, and I would start thinking there rather than thinking long COVID, and therefore I would go remdesivir. Excellent. Um, and that's that's a choice that we chose, um, considering that Paxlovid um, is excellent at decreasing risk with a relative risk reduction of 89%. Monopiravir, um, we, we don't hear about it as much because it was really about 30%. Remdesivir is at about 80%. And this is all for acute COVID. Uh, like Dr. Del Rio mentioned, uh, the data in uh, potentially decreasing risk of, of long COVID is in um, Paxlovid. Uh, although hopefully uh, there should be some uh, observational data on remdesivir showing that as well published soon. Um, so yeah, I think as we've mentioned before and was mentioned in the previous Q&A, I think it's important to take into account the risk of developing long COVID um, in, in determining how you're gonna manage these patients as well, keeping in mind that um, the data are still, still largely observational. Um, and so we've gone over our time just a little bit. We're going to jump right into the Q&A session, and um, I will moderate that. So the first question is coming, um, uh, says, is it time to call this chronic COVID infection so as to guide treatment and development? I'll start with Dr. Antar and get your thoughts on calling it chronic COVID as opposed to long COVID. Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I think some infectious disease doctors, including myself, would be a little um, hesitant to call something a chronic infection if we don't have evidence that there really is um, um, chronic antigen or um, replicating virus in the host. And I think while there is some suggestive data that some people with long COVID might have um, spike antigen in their uh, blood, and there's some evidence that there couldn't be some antigen in the gut as well. Um, you know, in my own cohort, we've looked at that and haven't seen it. Um, I know they've looked at it in the link cohort as well too, and it's not present in everyone. So, so I guess I guess I would just hesitate. And then the other thing is, I think you know we should always be like following patients and their lead. And so it seems to me from you know my reading and conversations that long COVID is the preferred term uh, for symptoms. Um, and then we call you know the the umbrella of sequelae. Uh, post-acute sequelae, but yeah, so that's my take on it. But I, I, I would just might have other opinions. I would just say that the what I don't I don't like the term PASC. You know, whatever you know, I think it was Tony Fauci came out with that you know acronym. It just it just doesn't stick. And and patients come and talk about having long COVID, and this is in fact that's the title we use we use for the webinar because you know that's that's what everybody calls it. So I I, I don't necessarily think, and I agree with Dr. Antar that. You know, chronic COVID infection means there's some ongoing infection, and I still need evidence of that in order to call it that. Um, Dr. Siegelman, any other thoughts as our, our patient representative and also a clinician? Um, from the patient side, yeah, I know that the patient advocates who came up with that term feel strongly about it. Uh, they, they published uh, their the origins of that name, and I would say that the community definitely identifies around it. 
Um, excellent. So what exactly is cognitive rehabilitation and how would patients access that referral to neurology? And so um, that's something that we, we addressed. Um, uh, my experience is that the neuropsychologists oftentimes offer that, but if you have a memory clinic within your institution, um, those experts usually are familiar with cognitive rehabilitation approaches. They tend to target the uh, cognitive domains that are impacted. Um, in long COVID, which uh, there's a number of studies characterizing. Um, granted, those are very small observational studies. And uh, they, they mostly are about pacing and about um, compensatory approaches. Does anybody have anything else to add? Uh, Dr. Predes, I know you have some experience in this. Uh, no, no, no. I think that's uh, exciting. Exciting. Um, another question, what do you think about anti-inflammatory diet for treatment of uh, fatigue? So um, Dr. Predes, um, is there any uh, support based on your understanding of the physiology uh, that an anti-inflammatory diet would help and what would that mean? Uh, no, I also uh, do some microbiome research as, as well. And, and I think it's that maybe I do too many things though, but um, um, Mm, I think that diet is one of the most complex issues. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I think that physicists should really evaluate diet. It's uh, extraordinarily multidimensional, and 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 it's easy to tell patients, yeah, you should do an anti-inflammatory diet, but I don't know exactly what's that. Um, and we just recently saw, you know, uh, reports from the WHO recommending sugar again instead of sweeteners. Uh, um, if you do, I mean, I think it's too, too variable. Uh, I think it's good to do research. I, I think we underestimate the complexity of diet, uh, many times. Uh, so clearly as of today, I would not recommend anything like that. Yeah. I've been hearing a lot from patient, um, advocates about low histamine diets or uh, histamine inducing, uh, foods. There, uh, there's no studies that I'm aware of that would speak to, to. No. To so. One of the, I, and I might be a little bit too radical, but one of the things that have, that we learned during COVID is that actually um, treatments can do harm. Um, and, and then our first, uh, you know, oath, uh, the Hippocratic Oath is do first do no harm. So so if you, for example, use prednisone in patients and you don't have good evidence, um, there's also risks. Uh, so, so I think that everything that we recommend to patients should be clearly backed up by science or at least by whatever it's closer to, to, you know, a randomized clinical trial or observational measures. So and we need to be very, very strict on that because it's on, on, on patient rights only to recommend what we have evidence and do as many clinical trials as we can, of course. Yeah, I'd like to jump in. Um, yeah, so I, I agree that right now there's no good evidence that a particular diet will help with long COVID per se. We actually have early evidence from our um, co one of our cohorts. So I run two cohorts that total over 500 people. Um, and we look specifically um, what puts you at risk for new or worsened fatigue, just that question that this person's asking. And um, we looked at a number of factors, including comorbidities and sex and, you know, all sorts of things like your D-dimer, CRP, other things. And actually, one of the things that stood out was the number of fruits and vegetables that you have in your diet before you got COVID, which was like interesting and surprising to me. Um, so basically, the people who were eating more fruits and vegetables were less likely to get fatigue after COVID in one of our cohort studies. And these in this cohort, just for the context, is mostly vaccinated um, and in the, mostly in the Omicron era. So I think it's like somewhat applicable to today. And I think, you know, just what Dr. Prater is saying is, you know, we shouldn't prescribe things for long COVID that, you know, we wouldn't prescribe for anyone. But actually, there is great evidence that the Mediterranean diet, which is mostly an anti-inflammatory diet, um, 
decreases your risk of cancer, decreases your risk of diabetes and heart disease. So I think I actually talk to my patients about diet a lot in the clinic because I think diet is the best medicine. And yes, I think if you eat more fruits and vegetables, more whole grains, less refined sugar, you know, less meat and dairy, then yes, you're going to be healthier. You're going to have less of these diseases. Um, and then we have this kind of early emerging data about this too. Excellent. Thank you for sharing those insights, everybody. Uh, we've gone a little bit over our time. And so I believe now we are going to move on to a break. A lot of good uh, questions in the chat that hopefully we'll be able to get to later. But um, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion panel. Yes, well, go, ahead. Oh, go ahead, Carlos. Go ahead. No, thank you, uh, uh, Tiffany. And thanks, everybody. I think this was a very, very useful discussion. And I think it really brings home a lot of the points that we want to get. We're going to have a 15-minute break, and it has to be an exactly 15-minute break. We'll come in at 1.45 Eastern time. And at that point in time, uh, Dr. Antar will do her presentation. So take a break right now, stretch out, get some water, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.